Welcome back to Hodlers, episode 17. Today, we're joined by Alfonso. You may know him as MacroAlf on Twitter. He is a genius when it comes to macroeconomics. You're the founder and CEO of the Macro Compass, as well as a former head of a $20 billion portfolio. That is crazy. And of course, we've got the one and only Tyler with us, also known as NFT Dad. So he's Hello, our buddy. co-host, as you know. So starting off, Alfonso, for all the people listening right now, do you want to give a brief description of who you are, what you do? Yeah. So right now I run the Macro Compass. It's a macroeconomic research and investment strategy firm. The idea is to educate people on macroeconomics um, Mm -hmm. and what happens in global macro. I did that professionally as an investor for, I mean, run professional macro strategies in portfolio management for eight years, um, up until I ended up managing a very large portfolio at the peak of my career. Um, stopped that uh, at the end of 2021. And the reason was literally that it was very nice, to be honest, and a great job. Uh, opened a lot of doors for me as well when it comes to networking and learning. But actually, I was just making money for the bank. Literally, that was it. Mm. And I felt that um, I wanted to try something else. The thing that hit me the most was not being able to share my thoughts with people mm. out there and also you know, have, have an open conversation. There's a lot of compliance when you run that kind of institutional money, right? So I decided, well, you know what? Let's take the leap of faith and let's see if I put out my thoughts, what happens. So that's what I did in 2022 and set up the Macro Compass um, and it actually went very well i'm very happy with it a lot of positive feedback which led me i think to be one of the biggest if not the biggest macro newsletter out there at the end of 2020 in the world and then i basically graduated that into an old platform uh, at the beginning of 2023 and um, here we are wow that's that's quite an impressive story and you still got a very very long way to go there's going to be so much that happens so how did like uh your obsession over like macroeconomic start because it's like a very very in-depth topic and you can't just learn it like that it takes years of experience it actually runs in the family i would say um okay my uh, mother is a treasurer of a small italian bank uh, mm-hmm. i'm italian i mean my accent come on i don't even <laughs> I guess this um and so when i was a kid maybe 14 um she already was busy during the lunch breaks checking this futures um, stock prices on the computer mm. i was like what the hell is that i mean why am i eating and looking at this thing in the first place <laughs> and she's like you know the market doesn't stop when we eat so we can have a chat but i need to keep an eye on this stuff and i'm like what is this stuff she's like yeah this is a future what this is the future what the hell is that so i started actually get, getting into that from a young age uh, you're very curious normally when you are that age right so anything that uh, gets thrown at you you want to chew on the bone and that's what i started doing and then by 1617, I had some basics, you know, I bothered my mother a lot and some friends that worked in the business. And I decided to pursue the career at university. But actually, I, I started already when I was a kid. So it, the passion was built from um, the time I was an adolescent, basically. Wow, that's a pretty cool family. Uh, that's, a, that's pretty cool. So how, how did that then transition from you going from learning like as a teenager about economics and then suddenly becoming the head of investment for a massive fund like that. Where's the jump? It was that it wasn't that sudden. I have to say it was a lot of (laughs) work and hard hours being put into that and luck as well at the same time. Um, 
look, so I started running money at, I was 22, I think, um, mm -hmm. junior portfolio manager. Um, you know, there were a lot of senior people around me, very expert. They would, you know, make sure that I did things not too bad, let's say. And I was lucky because, you know, these guys, they have done that for 20 years. They're true mentors. If you are open and humble and listen to them, your learning curve is incredibly steep in the first few mm -hmm. years. And um, that was the case, really. I mean, I was taught by my parents, really. I come from a humble Southern Italian family that, you know, it's hard work and grind. And if there is somebody more expert than you, you shut up and you listen. You know, that's mm -hmm. basically what, uh, what, I, what I grew up with. And it served me well, I have to say. So the first few years were a very steep learning curve. I started actually developing uh, my own strategies and there was a lot of background work, as you know, since I was an adolescent. And I read a lot after work. So it, it, basically my work wasn't my work. It was a passion and it actually helped me a lot. And after two to three years, the performance was actually pretty good. And the bank uh, decided to promote me at first. And then uh, maybe after three, four years, they really decided to expand um, the mandate I had, both in assets I could cover and in money I could run till the peak was reached. Uh, I think $20 billion was the maximum I managed institutional money. Uh, I managed fixed income, equities, derivatives, currencies, basically whatever can be called macro. Effectively, anything can be called macro. It's a very broad term. And uh, that's how it went. So when, you, when you're dealing with that much money, it, does it have a toll on your psychology at all? Or were you already used to that managing money like that? No, you're never ready to manage that kind of money. It's impossible. Mm. Uh, it's, it's impossible. So what again served me well was that my mentor really made sure that I understood that uh, you should leave your ego at home when you show up in the office to trade money. Um, being emotionally detached completely from your trades, being the winners, being the losers is one of the keys to be able to scale up your assets under management. Because at that point, 100 million or 1 billion, it's going to feel relatively similar as long as the attitude remains that you should be unemotional both on your wins and on your losses, right? And apply a pretty systematic strategy that is also what I was doing, especially in risk management. And nothing, still of what I do today on risk management side, is left to creativity. There is a system behind, a sizing system for each position, and a risk management system that is pretty systematic. There is nothing like left to my whim, let's say, when it comes to managing the risks. And that's personally, from my point of view, something that helps. Because even if the, your, your asset management are large, as long as you have a strategy that you trust, and it's all systematic and measured and quantitative, you can apply risk management on large positions as well without feeling uh, emotionally involved, let's say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when it comes to trading, that's what I, well, that's what I advise for everyone is you've also, you've got to sort of become a robot and just detach yourself from everything rather than looking at like the monetary value. You've got to look at percentages and stick into a system. Otherwise people, of course, get emotionally attached to their trades. And then that's when it goes the wrong way. Um, and like you said, with mentors as well, like most millionaires, most billionaires you see always advise to get a mentor. Because it just like, rather than you making mistakes, you may as well learn from someone else's mistakes. Like same with books, like why would you spend 20 years researching something when someone's already done it for you? You may as well learn that way. Um, going over macroeconomics as an absolute like newbie, can you explain like the, the term macroeconomics and what it involves? Yeah. So macroeconomics is really 
the art or the science or a mix of the two, mm-hmm. trying to understand and study the forces driving economic growth, inflation and markets. So it, it really all starts from understanding what drives economic growth, how our economic system and monetary system is built, who prints money, who prints what type of money, not all money is the same. Um, where does inflation come from? How, is gro- how are the growth cycles? Um, how do they develop? And it's all of that, right? All of that together. It's a very fascinating mm-hmm. um, topic. So we can cover some of it, I think. And I, I guess the first part I would like to cover with your blessing, guys, is uh, how, how do we generate economic growth in the first place? Like in the very long term, how do we generate more growth? And the answer to that question is demographics and productivity. And it's very simple. So imagine that we have a pie and the pie is the amount of people that are working, what I call the labor force. So that's the amount of people between say 19 and 65, 20 and 65, roughly. This is the labor force. This is the amount of people eligible to work. The more labor force out there, the more potential growth an economy has. Does that make sense for you? I mean, there are more people that can contribute to economic growth. So you want your labor force to grow, basically. Mm -hmm. That's what you want. Mm -hmm. How do you grow that? Well, you make kids. At some point, they turn 20, so they become eligible to work. Mm -hmm. Um, Or you have a population that doesn't... Uh, become an army of gray-haired people all at once because then they drop above 65 and all of a sudden they're not eligible to work anymore, right? Or they retire. So you want kids or let's say fertility rates as they're called to be able to at least replace the amount of retirees every year, if not to actually more than replace that because you want the labor force to grow all the time. That's the first source of growth. The second source of growth is productivity because these people... They can be more, but if they are not productive, then it doesn't matter, right? I mean, they can be more people, but if they just you know, roll their, their thumbs there the whole time, it, it's not going to work. So productivity is basically the amount of output that you can generate per each hour, hour of work effectively. So it's a very simple concept. And now let's, if I would ask you guys, what do you think is the potential growth of Europe For instance, looking at these two drivers, labor force growth and productivity growth. My my guess out of the rate out of the gates is that there's probably a fairly high retirement rate and perhaps there isn't that fertility rate to fill the back end. So immigration is probably a really key factor in, in monitoring enough immigration in order to fill those roles to keep the employment rate high enough to um, balance inflation. So why do you need me? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and and well i i I need you because uh i'm listening to the radio i'm in canada of course and i'm hearing um you know the on the news they're talking about an employment rate being quite like very high in canada and then i hear the bank of canada saying that means we might need to increase interest rates again i'm like well why would you increase interest rates again when there's this amount of people working so that I, I was sort of disconnected. Yeah, with that. We, we, yeah. We, we, can, we can go through that. So yeah. let's finish the story on potential yeah. growth. And you are right because Europe, not only Europe, 
also Canada, Korea, Japan, China, all these large jurisdictions will have negative labor force growth over the next 30 years. Not zero, but negative, wow. which means there will be more people retiring than new kids joining the labor force. Right. So basically you get a compression, you get a reduction, which means you have a, actually a drag on growth going forward. You have less people able to contribute to economic growth, not good. So that's mm. when you hear the demographics problem, this is the problem, mm. right? Right. So mm. this, these countries are then maybe able to offset this with productivity because if you have less people, but they're more productive, mm. then you can make up for it. The problem with productivity is we are talking about productivity growth. So we're talking about becoming more productive than yesterday. Okay, so that's, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's on a growth basis. And technology is what I get pointed to most of the time. It's like, hey, dude, look at all this technology we have, and therefore we are more productive. Well, the problem with technology is that we, the positive effect of the technological development and the penetration of technology through different sectors is behind us. Technology has already permeated most of the sectors of the economy. So if you look at productivity growth between the 70s and 2000, it picked up materially because it was all industrial mechanical processes that were automated, that were, were technology penetrated and made them better, made them more productive. We have already seen that progress behind us. And now we are trying to engineer another inch of productivity year after year. So we grow our productivity levels, but not that much, let's say, which makes mm. all of this in summary mean that most economies' potential growth over the next 20 to 30 years is below 1%. Wow. So you grow, you grow 1% real GDP growth per year. How, is, how does that sound? I mean, your reaction is quite telling, right? It's not that socially acceptable, is it? I mean, it's like, yeah, you grow 1%. I mean, dude, you're basically sluggish. You don't move. And that leaves me with how do you engineer growth? And that's the bridge to growth to inflation. Remember, that's the second important driver of macroeconomic analysis. If you cannot grow potentially that much anymore, you, you want to engineer faster growth anyway, the way to do it is debt, leverage. Think of your trading account. It's the same, exactly the same. So on your trading account, if you only want to use your balance, you are limited to a certain extent on how many products you can trade because maybe some of them require too much margin up front. They're too big, too volatile for you to trade. How do you solve that? Well, you lever up, right? You go into products that offer more leverage. So your capital up front gets used less, but still you can take a lot of risks. Mm. These magnifying effects of leverage is also what we used in our economy from the 90s to today in a very disproportionate way. How mm. do we do it in the real economy? It's very simple. Think you want to buy a house. House costs $500,000. You don't have $500,000 in your account. You show up at the bank and you say, look, I'd like to buy that house. And the bank goes like, okay, so do you have a job? Yeah. Uh, okay, let's look at your future salaries between now and the next 30 years. How much are they worth? This. Okay, I'm going to lend you some money today against your future cash flows. So you take your future purchasing power and you move it all up front. That's credit. 
that's basically creating new money, creating credit against the pledge of paying it back over time. But you are front loading all these cash flows today. You are getting now credit against the pledge of paying back. So you're leveraging up, right? You are ballooning your balance sheet. You are increasing your leverage. You take the money and all of a sudden you can buy the house. Money you didn't have, you now have, that's credit. That's also debt. So you're getting indebted basically to be able to do this transaction. Households, corporates, and governments all did the same over the last 30 years because if you borrow, if you bring upfront your future purchasing power, it looks like you can grow much stronger than you can only looking at, at your potential growth forces. Does it make sense? Because you have more purchasing power, more strength today because of the leverage you're getting, because of the credit you're getting today. Mm. Today, you can buy that house even if you can't afford it because of the credit you're getting from the bank. If you're a corporate, you want to invest in a certain project, you don't have the money, you borrow the money, and all of a sudden you can invest in that project, which means you can create employment, you can do spending, you can boost GDP growth today via using leverage. Debt to GDP between the private sector and the public sector. So summing up households, corporates, and the government, the amount of total economic debt in percentage of GDP growth rose from roughly 150% in the 1990s to over 300% in 2020. Wow. That's scary. So again, what we do is when we realize we can't grow that much organically because demographics is bad, productivity is what it is, we lever up. Because politically, it's unacceptable to grow 1%. Every politician now wants to grow more. He wants more jobs today. He wants a better economy today. That's what they care about. So they use leverage. And the next guy comes in and wants the same thing. And so they're going to encourage leverage. The process of creating more money, creating more credit today, getting more debt on board, if unchecked, especially if this credit is then spent on unproductive investments, leads to inflationary forces. And now inflation is nothing else than money being worth less over time. Mm. If you create more of this money at every cycle, if you create new dollars, if you lever up and borrow and create more credit every time, over time, this money will become less valuable. It's a function of that, right? Mm. And that's, that's inflation. So inflation can be described as especially bursts in inflation, like the one we are seeing in 2022 and 2023. They are generally the result of too much money chasing the same amount of goods and services in the economy. So if those goods and services don't change, if the supply doesn't all of a sudden go up, they, this remains fixed. But a lot of new demand comes from a lot of money being created, then generally prices are the adjusting mechanism. Mm. So inflation actually goes up. Mm. And I'm going to stop here for a second because then we move to the third pillar, which is money creation. And how's that, how does that work? Any questions, guys, or comments, or you're, you're getting bored? So I'm, I'm listening. I, I want to hear the third pillar for sure, but I'm just, and let me know when this is the right time to bring this picture or this question into the picture, just around the relationship uh, between uh, 
st- like do- job growth. Like we have the, the highest employment rate in decades in Canada, yet that seems to be a problem <laughs> in terms of uh, the, where our inflation is. So what's the relationship between yes. a really low unemployment rate? And so whenever you think that's the great time, the, a good time to include that information, I'm really curious about that. Actually, we can talk way. about that because so far we talked about the real economy. We talked about growth. We talked about inflation. Those are real economic forces. Yeah. Uh, there is a financial machine behind all of that where central banks and banks are very, very important players. And now you're asking me about basically the central bank role. Right. The role a central bank has in all of that is to make sure that inflation, which can be the destabilizer factor, when all of a sudden prices rise too rapidly or prices are depressed, they go down too rapidly. When that happens, things are unstable, basically. And when they are unstable, the whole system actually is in danger. So a central bank main role is to make sure that inflation is round about 2%. And 2% is an interesting number because people ask me, is there a scientific reason why 2% is a target? The answer is no. There is no scientific Mm -hmm. reason for that. But 2% is far enough, far away from zero. And zero or negative inflation means that your money is becoming more worth year after year. So you are being rewarded for not investing your money, not making your money circulate. You're being rewarded for hoarding money. Mm. An economy doesn't grow if everybody is, is rewarded to hoard money, right? right. So people, central banks don't like that. They want stable but positive inflation. That's what they want. They want a 2% inflation. So you know that your money gets a little bit watered down in purchasing power every year, but a little bit at time. So it doesn't need to be a burst of devaluation. It doesn't need to be a, a deflation, but something controllable. Mm. So their incentive scheme is to make sure that inflation always converges around 2%. Okay. And for decades, we have had inflation below 2%, say one, one and a half. They never got it there. The population is aging, so spending gets down, savings or the propensity to save goes up. So basically, the economy slows down, it's a bit stagnant, right? And technology was also a super strong force of this inflation for the last 20 years. Because think about that. How do we get to inflation is also via wages. If you raise wages, you get paid more. And then once you have more salary, you can spend more on goods and services and you can bring these prices up because this demand is very strong, right? Because your wage mm-hmm. is going up. Wage is going up, you can spend more and then inflation picks up. If technology replaces or automatizes a lot of jobs, like it happened between the 70s and 2020, basically in the last 50 years, there are less, there is less need for workers on a marginal basis than there was 20 years ago. Let me give you a statistic. In the US, in the 90s, to make $1 million of sales as a company, you needed eight employees on average. Eight employees, brick and mortar shop, 1 million of sales a year. Now, let me ask you, how many do you need today to make a million sales? Isn't it two? That's yeah, two. two. That's crazy. Nice. So wow. I circulated this chart a couple of weeks ago. It's impressive and it really speaks to the power of technology, right? You have replaced a lot of need for human labor with technology, which means there is this imbalance where people ask for more wages. Hey, I don't need you. 
that's been roughly the median answer that <laughs> companies have been able to give to uh, employees. That's why inflation has remained relatively subdued for the last 10 years. So for central banks, it was pretty easy job, you know? I mean, inflation wasn't 2%, but it was close to. So every time it went down, they actually did some easing. So easing means the cost of money gets lowered, which means mm -hmm. the economy gets a boost. If you want a mortgage, it's cheaper. Instead of being 3%, it's 2%. So if you want to go and borrow and buy that house, it's going to be easier for you. The moment you buy the house, you're maybe going to refurnish it. So you're going to give work to a construction employee, to a refurbishing shop or whatever it is, right? So the idea of the central bank is I lower interest rates, I make borrowing cheaper, you go and lever up because it's cheaper all of a sudden to do so, buy a house, get a loan, buy a car, whatever you do, and that makes the economy run faster until we go back to inflation to 2%. Mm -hmm. So it's just one big cycle. Correct. And now we are at the other end of the cycle. The other end of the cycle is that during the, the pandemic, all governments in the world, all at once, this had never happened, decided that it was about time to give a ton of money to people because we were locking down the economy. The US did $5 trillion, that's a lot of zeros, of fiscal stimulus. And fiscal stimulus is nothing else than the government saying, uh, dude, um, here is a check. You know, it's in your post box, just have fun. <laughs> and the thing with fiscal deficits is that the government is in control of the currency. So if they want to print more currency, if they want to do that, they are, they can do that. They print the, the very currency itself. So they basically give you the check or they lower your taxes. It's the same story. So you have more money than before but it doesn't come with the liability attached to it. Think of it, if you get a mortgage, yes, you get the money now that you didn't have, but you also have a debt to pay back mm. the bank over time. If the government sends you a check at all, what's your, do you have a debt to pay back to the government? Not necessarily, unless maybe in five years, the government wants more taxes. Maybe, you don't know that, maybe. But in principle, when the money hits your account, it's free money. All of a sudden, you have no debt attached to it. Five trillion dollars of debt being done only from the US. And then Europe did some, and Japan did some, and Australia did some, and Canada did some. Oh, my God. So there was a gigantic amount of spendable money being printed. Like, you know, money that you and I can go and spend on something. Remember what I told you before. Inflation is the destabilizer of the economic machine, right? It's what central banks try to keep always stable around 2%. Inflation is also the result of too much money chasing a fixed amount of goods. Oh my God, here we really hit the nail on the head. Too much money, yes, definitely. We gave people a lot of money all at once from all over the world, all concerted, all at once. And the supply, well, how do you adjust the supply of goods and services? We're all locked home. There is no production. There was basically, we had the so-called supply chain bottlenecks, which means uh, people have COVID, they can't work. Uh, the economies are locked down, the ports are closed. So we cannot increase the supply of goods and services. The perfect recipe for inflation. Now, inflation spiked and wherever you look at, I don't know if you are in Canada, Tyler, where are you, Leon, by the way? Uh, UK. UK. But I can pick anything. I mean, UK inflation 10%. Canada, I think seven or eight, you guys went yeah, to at some point. Seven, yeah. 
in, in Europe, 8, 10%, in the US, 8%. Guys, I mean, everywhere you look at, even in freaking Japan, they have inflation at 4% by now. I mean, it's ridiculous. And therefore, remember what central banks do in this case. They have to bring back this inflation down to 2% as soon as possible, or otherwise we have a problem because your money is becoming worthless at a rapid pace now. You're losing 10% purchasing power of your money every year. That's unacceptable. Mm. It's too risky. It's too risky. I mean, there is a risk that something goes wrong here, that people don't trust the currency anymore, right? So if you're a central bank, you want to bring inflation down to 2%. And the long answer, finally, to your question, Tyler, is... That's why Bank of Canada today, with inflation at still 6% or whatever it is, too high, sees a labor market, which is still pretty tight. I mean, new jobs are being created, it's cooling down, but still, it's decent, which means they think, holy crap, inflation is already 6%. Now new people get hired, they will probably be able to ask more wages because the market is hot right now. They will fuel this inflation fire again, how the heck do I make sure that inflation comes back to 2%? They raise interest rates more and more and more until they get there. The mechanics is the opposite of what we discussed today. Canada, for instance, is a big real estate market. Housing is very important in Canada. You try to get a mortgage now. See what happens. You show up at the bank and you're like, dude, last year was like 1% and I could get a mortgage or two maybe. And now you want a four, five? I can't afford this anymore. That's what the central bank wants. The central bank wants you not to be able to afford for the time being buying a new house. So you're going to cool off the economy. No construction jobs, no refurbishing jobs, no broker's jobs, none of this. Things need to cool mm. off for the time being until you rebalance everything back to 2%. And that's the lever that central banks try to use. They raise interest rates, they tighten the conditions when it's too hot out there, inflation is too high, vice versa, they stimulate. So the wow. job of the central bank is pretty much balance. That's it. Just balancing everything at once. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So now pushing over to like uh, times moving forward in the future, we want to talk about like the introduction of, well, everything we've got. We've got crypto coming. Uh, we've got Web3 and we want to talk about cashless society and the future of a cashless society and the impact it'll have on economics. Is it a big impact, small impact? So that's a very... Interesting question. Okay, so we talked about the model, Leon. If, and if I ask you what's wrong or debatable with this model, I think if I ask it to myself, the first answer I get is, this looks like a machine that is kind of has limited potential and we try to boost it every time with some drugs, basically. That's yeah, what yeah. it's like, right? And uh, well, it served us pretty well for 40 years. It went pretty okay, at least for the previous generation, not for us, but uh, for people <laughs> be older than us, it went exceptionally well for the last 40 years. Uh, what about now? Look, it's, um, there was a problem before the pandemic that the pandemic kind of postponed, which is interest rates were already at 0%. So how, how low do you want this interest? How, how do you stimulate more credit creation, more debt creation, if interest rates are already at zero, you can't lower them that much anymore, right? So we had that constraint. We will probably still have it at some point in the future. And in any case, having a business model that is predicated or 
lever up more, get more debt, and hopefully interest rates will be lower so you can refinance this debt every time. Yeah, it's uh, prone to mistakes. It's prone to failure. Mm. And so what did we do before this model? Because this model was introduced in 1971 after the gold standard was taken away. Before that, we had the gold standard. And the gold standard was basically a model where you could show up at any bank and ask to get your dollar exchanged for gold at a fixed price. Now, what if new dollars are created so rapidly? All of a sudden, there are too many dollars. And can you make gold? No, not I mean, You can mine gold, but it's a very limited amount per year, like a very limited amount per year, right? So that model implicitly limited the amount of dollars that could be created every year. Like, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's, you cannot create too many, otherwise people will show up and get them exchanged for, for gold and there is too many dollars and too little gold. Mm. And the gold mm. peg breaks. That's exactly what happened in 1971, by the way. Right, right. The gold standard basically was a way to pin, to, to peg credit creation against something hard that you cannot create. So there is a control mechanism in place, basically. Right. And we took away that, that allowed people to create credit whenever they wanted because there is nothing hard that pegs against anything. And now we are at the point where we are discussing again whether we should go back to some sort of hard asset pegging against um, money, fiat money, credit creation, etc. And uh, crypto uh, was, and still is, I think, a relatively interesting topic within this discussion because crypto has crypto, Bitcoin especially, has built in, in its construction, a similar architecture to gold, if you think about it, right? There are these you know, year cycles where there is a little bit new produced, right? Uh, but generally speaking, you know there is a final cap. It's very similar to gold as a conception, right? You can mine a little bit of gold every year. There is a limited amount of gold on Earth, right? You will not discover more gold all of a sudden. Um, the same goes for Bitcoin, right? It's 21 million at the end of the day, at the end of the road. That's it. You get a little bit more year after year, but it's a very limited amount. So sounds like a very similar architecture, right? Mm -hmm. On top of it, uh, gold uh, has a bit of problems, right? If you want to exchange gold, you have to send some gold bars to somebody in another country. It's pretty, you know, uh, inconvenient in a, in a, in a technologically um, advanced society. Bitcoin also solves that problem, right? So it's a very appealing asset, I would say, from somebody that tries to think, well, maybe things will change back to a system where we need a hard asset. Maybe crypto and maybe Bitcoin in particular can play a role there. And I tend to sympathize with this uh, theory. That's why I consider uh, crypto an interesting asset class. There is one problem, though. Gold is already sitting on the balance sheet of the very institutions that should facilitate this transition. Governments, central banks. Gold is already there. It's in their vault. It's sitting there. It's an asset that is recognized, basically, in that ecosystem. And it has already served that role in the past. It's in the very institutions that are supposed to facilitate this transition. It already sits there. It has already done that mm -hmm. in the past. And Bitcoin would instead be something totally new. It would be something that actually comes as a, an alternative more mm -hmm. than 
something that could complement the current system, right? So it, it's normally met with opposition. You feel mm -hmm. that all these institutional players are saying, no, no, we can't allow that. This is not something that we feel comfortable with. And I'm going to take a second here and uh, let you guys make some considerations on that. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, as you're describing, you know, cryptocurrencies and its involvement, uh, certainly over the past several years, the boom and bust were kind of right now in a little bit of a crypto winter, they're calling it. And, uh, yeah. And uh, we've got this idea that, you know, we've kind of tested out Bitcoin before in certain eco economies. It did okay, didn't do great. So, you know, what I want to ask you to sort of dovetail into this is the um, addition of artificial intelligence and its ability to possibly, um, as you said, you know, not be in competition, not with the traditional banking and crypto, no competition. How can it integrate? Do you think AI would play a role because it can, you know, for example, Rose.ai can, you know, analyze so much in, in such a short amount of time. Is this that little extra bit of techno technological bump that might give us that ability to move into a sort of simpatico with crypto and traditional industries through the through artificial intelligence? Yeah, I think the role of artificial intelligence can be interesting. It's one of the technologies that could give birth to a new productivity boost, right? So we discussed about productivity being stagnant, this could be something that, again, could revitalize productivity. And uh, Rose AI, you mentioned, that's very interesting. It's uh, from a friend of mine, actually, the, the company. And oh, uh, no yeah, and I find that very interesting, right? I mean, you want to analyze stocks, you want to um, do something complicated, just shoot some word at a machine and it will get it done <laughs> for you. I mean, it's incredible, right? Hours and hours of work, bam, you just produce a chart and it's done. And uh, that shows the potentiality of AI, I think. Also, as every kind of new technology, it will probably be a bit frothy at the beginning, so too much hype around it. But once you clear the fog, it could really be something interesting for uh, revitalizing this, this productivity and, and growth pattern to basically find a way forward to grow organically without having to count every time on more debt, more debt, and more debt. It's definitely an interesting thing. Love the, the word frothy used in them. It makes me think of either a delicious uh, latte or, or, or the beer <laughs> I might have later today. Leon, Leon has a, a wrap-up question for you. We love to ask all of our guests here. Yeah, so um, yeah, it's been a nice, nice little podcast there. So this is the last question that we ask like most of our guests. It's basically advice for the viewers. So if you could go, well, sort of a two-part question. If you could go back to when you started your journey as a banker, as an economist, what is one piece of advice you would give yourself? And also what is one piece of advice you would give to the listeners listening right now who want to have a role in like macroeconomics? Learn to program would be my <laughs> advice that I would give to myself as well. Uh, doors will be open for you if you are, if you're able to think in programming terms, which means in algorithmic terms and also program. It's really important. It will really open up the job market for you. It's, it's, it's a powerful tool, I think, especially if combined with macroeconomic skills. That's really powerful. Because you're not, not only able to conceptualize what's going on in the economy, but you can also put it in a model 
encoded and automatized, extremely powerful combination of skills. And then advice for people listen. Oh, well, I guess that is advice for people listening as well. Learn how to program. That's a, yeah. that's a big one. It takes a long time, but yeah, that's, I guess they will end it there. That's the one piece of advice. So if anyone yeah. wants to get into economics, learn how to program. Boom. Um, thank you so much, Alf, for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Everyone can find you over on Twitter. You're on LinkedIn. And of course, your um, company, Macro Compass. We'll leave all your links in the bio. And yeah, we'll end it there. Thank you for so much for coming on. Lee and Tyler, it's been a pleasure. A very nice chat. I hope the listeners have got some uh, macroeconomic enthusiasm, at least. And if they want to see more, the macrocompass.com is my website. Boom.